Welcome to Spotlight McCall, conversations with local luminaries on their inspiration, creativity, and vision. I'm Renee Silvis, and today we're talking with Randy Priest. I consider Randy an Idaho treasure. He's lived in Idaho for over 70 years and is recipient of the Governor's Award in the Arts for Excellence in Folk and Traditional Arts. Randy designs and crafts hats, each one unique. His hat shop in Donnelly is a destination. When you step into the shop, you feel the Old West. It's in a, it's in a 1907 bank building that was originally um, built in Roseberry and moved to Donnelly in what, 1917, did you tell me? Yeah. Yeah. It has a walk-in safe. It's full of glorious hats and strange looking tools, and it smells like leather, oil, and hot irons. <laughs> <laughs> if you're captured by Randy, plan on a good hour of tall tales and hat fitting. <laughs> if you've never met him, just picture the Wild West version of Walt Whitman strumming a banjo. <laughs> and the Hat Shop Band is a Donnelly institution. Wow. Sound good? Sound like you? Well, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. how? tell me, how in the world does someone begin making hats of all things? Did I start making hats? Yeah, how did you start making hats? I've always been interested in hats. You know, I'm never thinking about them, but I was going to show you a picture. I got a picture of one I was maybe three or four years old, sitting on the front porch with a hat on. And then I made hats in high school, and uh, we used to buy, go to Salvation Army or Desert Industries and buy these old hats there for probably 50 cents. And then I'd tear the guts out of them, sweat bands and linings and stuff like that, and put them in boiling water and put a beer glass on top of a broomstick and then stretch it down so it looked kind of like a witch's hat. But then were our blasting hats in high school for keg parties. And then uh, later I just started, uh, you know, buying old hats and kind of learned by myself how to clean them and straighten them out and then I'd sell them off my head. How old were you when you were doing all of this? Oh, gosh. It was a sophomore, maybe a sophomore in high school and off and on through the duration. So you found your way early. Uh, yeah, I was just always interested in hats. My dad was a, you know, wore hats and mm. he probably, you know, the old geezers used to have fedoras and they'd have one for each color suit they had and, uh -huh. and then one for just planting the garden or whatever. It, it was just normal, people wore hats. Right. So you people, you would wear one of your hats and people, you said you sold them off your head, people would be yeah. captured by your hats and want to have one. I did that mostly in Idaho City is where I had a We'd go to town and I'd pick up some old hats and come back and then head for the bar. You were upcycling before it was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you would find these old relics and figure uh -huh. out how to make them new. Clean them up and, you know, just make them look cool. Uh-huh. And you would find things, find what, feathers and yeah. hat bands? Adornments, yeah. All different kinds. And uh, local cowboys and stuff would bring their hats to me for to straighten them out and stuff like that. When I moved to Idaho City, there was a lady up there, Minetta Schreit, and her and her husband had a, bought a hat shop in, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of it, but then they turned it into Rowell's Hat Shop, which Louis Rowell was the owner. And then Lewis died, and Manetta kind of took the hat shop over, but she moved up towards Idaho City and Minnehaw Creek and built hats out of her house there. 
and everybody said I need to meet her and finally did meet her and at one point she had a Charles Corralt come out and do an interview with her and she got behind and I was actually driving over there and helping her mm -hmm. do the hats and stuff. But so someone began to teach you? Yeah. And I probably worked with her a total of maybe 15 hours at the most. And she just says, Randy, you're a natural hatter. Huh. She says, you need to make hats. And what does that mean? Like, what is it that drew you? Like, what is it about making a hat that just feels so natural for you? I don't know that, uh, I think you kind of see things three-dimensionally. And that was kind of a gift that I have, you know. To, I call it a sweet eye. Mm. Sweet eye. So it's like a sculpture. Yeah. Basically like that, you're uh -huh. molding felt into a hat. Uh -huh. Several different shapes and sizes and and then an eye for seeing what looks good on people. A lot of mm. people just come in and say, I want a hat, you build it. And you're able to look at them. And no color, no style, or anything. And you can look at their, their who they are, something about them, and, yeah, and you just, know what might work on, on their personality and who yeah, they are. Yeah, something about at least I give it a try, and invariably it works. Uh -huh. and, and it's fun. It's a great way to meet people, because it's not like a retail store, you know. Uh -huh. Sitting in there talking, they're kind of adding an appendage to them, or something similar, and become friends, and then, and then of course they tell their friends, which is my only real form of advertising, is mm -hmm. word of mouth. So let's go back to your early training. So you learned from her, and then you just you just kept building the skill set. Yeah, and then I, I used to drive over from Idaho City and help her once in a while and take my Honda 150 and Mm -hmm. Take the back roads as much as I could, you know. The only highway is I get off at Clear Creek and then I had to go to Banks and then after that it was pretty safe driving and then up over Alder Creek Summit and in Idaho City on the back road. I'm imagining the kind of people there wanted cowboy hats. They wanted a certain kind of a hat. So you learned to specialize in hats for hats for Idaho? Well not that didn't uh I just started building hats, and a lot of the people that came in already had hats, and they wanted to duplicate it. Huh. The duplicate hat they already that loved. Hat, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I got some started getting pictures around so people could have see the options. Mm -hmm. And when I first started, most people knew what they wanted, you know, with the exception of a few city people, and they just. So you build what you think looks good on me, and they'd usually pick a color, you know, color therapy. Some people are browns, and some people are reds, and... So all kinds of hats, like bowlers, or... Oh, yeah. Cowboy, I mean, what were the kind of, what are the kinds of hats you know how to build? I mean, I know you can do the cowboy hat, and there, are there other kinds of hats you've learned? Yeah, there's uh, fedoras, and homburgs, and... I do a Western Derby. What I call a Western Derby is not like the English Bowler Derby. It's, uh -huh. it's slightly different. And uh, well, I haven't been stumped yet. <laughs> uh, You'll just make it up. Doesn't yeah. matter what it's called. Yeah, and it's just uh, and I just really really liked it. And the dry cleaners, we traded the land for the dry cleaners. It was perfect because it had steamers in it and everything. And then Manetta had uh, crown iron she loaned me and then several blocks and stuff. And uh, we also run the dry cleaner, so we did have an income because we did sheets mm. and in all the uh, restaurants and motels from Mackey to Stanley mm -hmm. from Chalice. Yeah, the, the process of making a hat, a lot of people don't know the tools that are involved. Like there's, you need sort of these, the hot irons and, and like the steam. Oh yeah, you need uh, like steam boilers and irons and 
Uh, there's quite a few even today. I don't have all the equipment you need, but I've managed. Uh-huh. And I, <clears throat> that was one of the reasons I went to a big hat shop down in Salt Lake to see the equipment they have and how to use it. And, um, but I know, think I've got by, and my hats are. I've got lots of return customers and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the charm but. of your hats is that you create this work of art with what you have, the tools that you have. Right. They're homemade. They all have a certain charm to them. I think the fact that you do get by with what you have is part of the the joy of having a hat from Randy Priest. Yeah. It's, made its way up the ladder, you know, <laughs> so to speak. So would you consider it, um, what you do, a spiritual practice? Like, is there something in it that feels kind of like a devotion or kind of a divine call? Or is, like, you're, are you channeling something? Does it, does it have any of that quality? Uh, I've had a couple of experiences that told me I need to be a hat maker. And the last one I had was uh, after I moved here. Uh, lived here, and me and Cassie moved down here, and she had the health food store, mm -hmm. and I had the hat shop behind it. Mm -hmm. And it was just getting tiresome. And then I went to Mexico and come back, and Cassie had moved. And then you moved the hat shop. Yeah, and mm -hmm. then I had to move the hat shop down around the corner. Mm -hmm. And at that point, they were uh, rebuilding the highway. So you could not get to my hat shop with a car. Mm -hmm. But, you know, regular customers and stuff like that would walk and find me, but I wasn't getting any, you know, just off the wall walk-ins. Mm -hmm. And I had 11 days left on my lease for the building and was going broke. Didn't have any money. So I went back and uh, checked out, you know, a rental place to put my equipment, and I just didn't know what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. I was probably, I would have probably headed for Mexico. But this guy, I met him. He came in and uh, ordered a hat for me one time, and I don't know if you remember Greg that worked for me or not. But I'd call off this stuff to him, and he'd write down the information. Anyway, we got to talking, and he lived in Aberdeen, Idaho. He was an old bronc riding cowboy, and we graduated the same year. I graduated from Pocatello, but we were like 40 miles from each other, and graduated the same year. And, of course, I live in Pocatello and went to college there, and a lot of people from Aberdeen come in there, plus that's where we used to go pheasant and duck hunting all the time. And we got to be pretty good friends. Well, anyway, he came in to pick up his hat, and Greg had written down the long, wrong size. So it went clear down over his ear oh, and everything. No. And I was so <laughs> embarrassed, but it didn't bother him at all. So uh, I ended up making him another hat, and then he ordered two more that day. And you were back in business. And this was prior to me just about going out of business. Right. This is when I first met uh, Dave Walter. So anyway, I was just getting ready and kind of getting stuff situated to move out of that place. And mm -hmm. here comes Dave Walters. And he says, can I uh, see your albums there with hats in them? And I said, yeah, sure. So he says, I'm just going to look through these for a minute. Go ahead and do the work you have to do. And he had some little stickers. And he'd put a sticker on a hat like that and go through and... Well, when he got done, he says, Randy, I got a sticker, and it, where each sticker is, that's the hat I want you to build me. Wow. Well, there was 25 of them, and he wrote me out a check for $12,000. Yes. Now you're back in business. Now wow. I'm back in business. Wow. So that um, yeah. Delta James mm -hmm. was working for me at that uh -huh. time. I remember, yeah. And so that gave us, it, this was in uh, the end of November. So uh -huh. now we had work to do all through yeah, the winter. Right. Also. Huh. And so the universe was saying to you, come come back, come back yeah, and do yeah. what you yeah, do. Don't be thinking like that. You need to be in the hat business. And Yeah. And I had, well, a couple other things, minor, you know, that weren't that. There's a word I want to say, but monumental or something uh -huh, like that. Uh -huh. 
And it just always worked out that giving me indications to mm -hmm. be in the hat business. Well, it's, when, it's interesting whenever you leave for the winter and you head south to get warm and, and you come back. You come back and you end up making hats again. Yeah. And I mean, if you're, you're 77 now, you, we, we can say you've been doing this for 60 years, more than. 50. Okay. That's, that's, a, life's, that's a life's work, a body of work. Uh-huh. And it, yeah, it just always felt good. Yeah, tell me more about that. How it feel? How how is it? How does it feel? Is there, what what is in it when you're in when you're in that flow? Oh man, I don't. Well, there's just something kind of overpowering when you do a hat for these people, and they mm -hmm. come in and they just love it. And they put it on their head, and it fits, uh -huh. and it looks good. And, yeah, I've I've been tipped up to two hundred dollars for you know a five hundred dollar hat. This is people are so mm -hmm. elated, and it's fun when somebody comes in and says, "Well, I'm not a hat person, but this work you do is pretty great." <laughs> and then, well, I got this from Cinnamon, my daughter, and she says, "Well, maybe you just haven't had the right hat on." Right. <laughs> And that works, you know, happened a couple of times where they changed their mind and, you know, I'd tell them that you don't have to have that money right now, give me $100 down and then you can uh -huh. pay for it however you want to and you want to pick it up. Yeah. So you give people joy and you give people something of themselves that they haven't met before, that they That's maybe don't know pretty, about. Yeah, it's right. And then they talk about it and that's... Mm -hmm. And pretty soon here comes their friends or their uncle or grandma or something, you know. And, uh -huh. and you know, a lot of people now say, I've been told if I come up in this country to be dang sure to go to the hat shop. Yeah. And that's happening more all the time. Yeah. And I had that exposure because uh, when I got that award from the governor, mm -hmm. I also made the newspaper. And then uh, oh, the radio show, uh -huh. local radio show come up and they interviewed me and it was on the radio in the morning and at night for a month. Really? And mm. so I was getting a ton of exposure. Sure. So yeah. I put that big hat sign in the front window and so when people go through Donnelly they see right. that. And then, see a lot of cars turn around I, I tell I tell people to go I'm serious when I say it's a destination it's it's like a you're like a cultural experience <laughs> I, I never thought of it like that. <laughs> so mostly you make hats out of felt and um, and we were telling me earlier that sometimes tell me about the beaver hats or the fur hats or the some of the more unusual yeah, the nature of the beaver hats is when you felt it because it just the little tiny hooks and hairs and stuff just lock in from all different directions. Like in wool, there's a strand of wool under a microscope. Mm -hmm. And then it's got these hooks on the side. And then when you start to steam that and agitate it and heat it, those hooks start hooking together. And that's the felting process. Okay. Beaver, it hooks from all different directions. So. You know, so it makes a really, really, really tight felt, and it's the most impervious to the weather. Huh. So it's really warm, insulated. It's really warm, and it lasts a long time, and it's just, uh, it's incredible. Is it you know, easy or difficult to work with? Pardon? Easy to work with? Difficult? Or how is it? It's, I've never had anything to compare it to. Okay. So it's just fine. Okay. <laughs> It's, uh, there's a lot of work and there's stress involved, you know, if you get that hat the wrong size or, uh -huh. you know, something happens. It's, what's nice is when you do it and they put it on their head and they just love it and pay you and walk out the door and dance to their car. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it's amusing business. I like it like that because everywhere I go around somebody, I know. How how did the music get started at the hat shop? Is is music something you've always 
had? Did it start fairly recently? Uh, I've always tried to do music, you know, I used to play guitar and try, but I never practiced or anything. And uh, when I come up here, I had a friend that, you know, we hung around Idaho City. And he had a friend up here who's Mikey Holmes that plays with mm -hmm, us now. Mm -hmm. And so we'd come up and uh, me and Mikey and Tommy would, uh, Saturday nights, just close the shop and play in the back room there where Kathy had the uh -huh. health food store. Then I started meeting people around here and finding out musicians. And we started just having jam sessions on Saturday nights. and. Mm -hmm. It got pretty popular, and in the summer we were playing outside, uh -huh. and so all the people that hung out in the bar would buy beer in the barn and come out and listen to us. And so pretty soon they hired us to play at the bar. See, now we're a destination for music. <clears throat> it's just such a great yeah. combination to hat shop and music. Yeah, and I just hooked up with these guys, and they're all great musicians, and I'm mm. a real late starter, even though I played a little bit here and there. But So you started playing banjo later in life? I always played it, but to mm. really get into it and play with somebody else. Okay. And Tommy was probably the only guy I ever played with. And so that was an experience too, especially getting on stage. And I know Andre started having me play with him, and I wouldn't face the audience that stage because I didn't. I knew how to play guitar, so I could see the finger positions, and then I could convert them onto the banjo. And so that's, I was back there watching, and then pretty soon I sang a song, and then pretty soon I learned a few more and mm -hmm. got rid of that stage fright. Uh -huh. and most of the time I had to have quite a few drinks, uh -huh. and uh, then I quit drinking for a while, and it started all over again. What, what started all over? I had all the stage fright. Oh, you had to go through the whole process. Yeah, because that drinking again. just loosened me up enough to I didn't really care. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. But I worked through it, and uh, I'm not very good at playing by myself because I'm so used to These guys just tolerated me. Okay, Mike, slow down now. We're going to take Randy through this until <laughs> he gets it. And, and they were just so great about doing that. Well, that's part of the jam culture is that you it's inclusive. You want everyone to be able to participate. So they, they wanted you to the, oh. in there. Yeah, we had jam on one night. We had seventeen musicians down there. I got quite a few pictures of that. Great. And we just had a lot of fun. And little Lois Fry used to come down. And, uh huh. Yeah. Um, Lois played with you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she'd come down whenever she could. Wow. See, you, it really was an institution if you had Lois there playing Lola with you. Lois and yeah, <laughs> and few of the other boys that play around here. So tell me, tell me about sobriety. How I I'd love to know this. How has that made you? A, how has it changed you? Or what's been in it for you? What's been the blessing of that? Well, I go in and out, but I uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. I just got one morning and said I quit, oh. and eight years later I started drinking again. Mm. And I'm to the point now where I can actually drink three beers. Because before it was boogie till you pass out. Uh-huh. And you can drink three now and you're okay. Yeah. Mm. And I'm just fine and I don't, you know, it's not, it was just overpowering before. Yeah, you had to go through a period of sobriety to find something to get more stable. or There was something in that for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was, well, it's like coming out of a black cloud. You know, and... Energy changed a lot, and a lot more energy, and mm -hmm. just kind of clearer thinking. Mm -hmm. You began to become more interested in health? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I've had three wives, and most of the separations were due mm -hmm. to alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And so it worked out okay that way, but anyway, uh, yeah, I was, I was started drinking young. Mm, sure. Five years old. And Has it changed how you are as an artist, sobriety? Have you noticed any, is there anything different about um, 
making hats or yourself as a musician or not that I can think of. I just had more energy, and mm -hmm. it seemed like we was talking earlier about going to something just the surface. Yeah. And I started getting, you know, a little further into the things that I was doing, like music and stuff. I started doing it and, you know, stretched a little bit and played with other people, which was really hard because I'm so embarrassed. To, you know, it's a fear of rejection for sure. Uh -huh. So it's allowed you to go more more deeply into yourself, to explore more of who you are. Right. Yeah, without fear, without um, needing an excuse. You can do it out of pure curiosity. What's here? Yeah. And I still kind of dance around mm. that sort of thing. But I like music, I like to play music, and. It's really fun when you're having a ball and everybody's dancing and having a good time. You're so much fun to dance with. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we got a year behind, you know. <laughs> yeah, last year. I, I know. I know. So tell me about, um, you, you've told me about how you've studied with some medicine men or with, you've done some ceremonial work with some I of the tribes. I with medicine men just been around it you know I went to a couple of sun dances uh -huh. and I've always been interested in that culture and it was always still this when I did something bad we lived in Pocatello just outside the reservation when I did something bad they said okay we're going to take you out to the Indian reservation turn you loose and I always thought that would be trippy but they never did so so you had to go find it yourself. <laughs> I did. I got kicked out of my school, and uh, I had a friend who lived in Blackfoot. His name was Cecil Breland, and he was a Choban Indian. And actually, uh, instead of driving every day, I moved in with him and his folks. And his dad had property, and his mom was a nurse, but they lived in Blackfoot. But we spent most of our time on that reservation with Chief Joseph and his band of badasses. And, you know, we did stuff like branding for ranchers and stuff like that. And Saturday nights, tequila and fist fight. Okay. We'll go get fist fights. And chasing wild horses for the nation. They were needed some money and stuff, and they had a big herd of wild horses. And so we chased them down out there on the reservation. How do you chase down a herd of wild horses? It was the Indians' horses. Yeah, but how, how do you even do that? Well, if you know, if you're a cowboy, uh, you know, they got a huge land, and uh, I, <laughs> it was kind of funny, because I didn't have a horse or anything, but uh, Pino Edmo bought me my first pair of cowboy boots. Uh-huh. And then and those guys liked me. And so they said, we got a horse for you. And we was all getting ready to head up to horses, and a bunch of us went this way, and me and Cecil went this way. On horses. But on horses. With your but new boots. There was this big uh, <laughs> grove of hawthorn trees, and it oh, was in a canopy. Oh, oh no. Oh. So there's about eight guys in there, and he says, your horse is in there. And they had three lariats on it, holding it down, and they got a saddle on it. <laughs> wow. I said, there's your horse, Randy. <laughs> and they were just waiting to see what happened. So I went and jumped on it, and they did a couple of jumps and threw me off. And I got back on it and just headed out across the highway. And then it was sand out there. Mm -hmm. The sand was about that deep. So that horse had me on the back, and walking in that sand, it kind of mellowed it out. Oh. And then we got going pretty soon. Cecil looked out there. It must have been looked maybe six miles or so, it wasn't that far, but maybe three miles, and we could see those black spots, and all of a sudden they just, did, you know, they knew we were coming, they disappeared. Mm. And these Indians had already figured out uh, kind of their patterns, you know, what they'd do if they got startled. Mm. And so they went around that way, and me and Cecil just run that herd right into them, and then we caught up with them, and then it was a rodeo. Yeah. Full blast with that 22 inch and roping those horses and you know you get the lead horse and the rest of them will follow it. 
So, and then we took them down and put them in the corrals and then they graded them, bucked them out. And, you know, some of them went for food and some of them were good horses and, uh, and some were snotty. Pino, uh, those Indians were so cool with horses. Hmm. Pino had this one and we could be from here to the, my house. And that horse had red eyes and just started blowing snot and kicking at you. I mean, <laughs> wild, scary. Yeah, it's like a rite of passage. You had to learn how to do some things. Oh, yeah. Well, he had sandbags and stuff. And, of course, you know, they love them, love those horses. And he wasn't, just took his time and it probably became one of the best horses on the reservation. It was a roping horse, you know, that they roped off of. Uh -huh. We had a buck and barrel out there for bull riders. Uh, Buddy Hugus was a state champion, and he ran around with his. Sam Hutchison was a state champion bulldogger, and he was fun in a fist fight. He was also a Golden Glove boxer. So you just kind of hung around with these guys. You didn't really participate in any rodeo kinds of things, or did you? We just we didn't do any rodeos, but we had grounds right there where we. Uh, you know, had steers and stuff that we could ride on. Okay. But, so you did some roping and riding and... Yeah. Okay. Everybody had lariat. When we sit around mm. talking and stuff like that, roping each other, or somebody would run by and you'd... Foot them is what they call it. They're the head and foot for the team ropers. What did all that teach you? Like, how did all that contribute to to who we know as Randy Priest? Like, what, all, what did they give you? Well, I, I don't know. I never thought about that. But just lifelong friends, and I had a thing with the Indians. I just always liked them mm -hmm. and respected them. You felt comfortable. Yeah. These exactly. were your buddies. And Well, I learned a lot of people, you know, teased me because I hung out with the Indians. Ah. Squaw man or something like that. But I had a pretty girlfriend, Sugar. <laughs> Sugar. And uh, these Indians I run around with and stayed at their house were. You actually preferred their company. You didn't mind other people teasing you. <laughs> yeah. I got teased my whole life. Mm. And my friends taught me how to dress and I. Teachers used to wash my elbows and clean my fingernails and stuff like that. And you know, I had two cousins that lived down the alley from me, older girls, and they used to take me in and make me take a bath. <laughs> and they take care of me. Because you hung out with those Indians, you were becoming uncivilized. Yeah, there were three families that uh, were actually looking to adopt me. Hmm. And anyway, just went on from there. But you had your family. You had your buddies and in the Indians. That was like your family? This was when I was going back to when I was younger. But mm. it was, it was in high school. Mm -hmm. I, I hung around with them, but I actually moved on the reservation. I had make. They kicked me out of Pocatello High School, and it was 25 miles to Blackfoot, so that's where I had to go to school. Oh. And this was my senior year. And in Pocatello, you had to have a government credit. Well, they didn't have that in Blackfoot, so I had to go back to Pocatello a half a year and take government. Hmm. Which my cousin taught, <laughs> but he didn't like me very much. He was just I was a loudmouth asshole. So, so when you said when you had to go to the Blackfoot, was that a reservation school or? Uh, the reservation is between Pocatello and Blackfoot. Okay. But uh, you know, Fort Hall reservation, just about right in between. So. All kinds of ways to get an education. All kinds of ways to get an education, yeah. Randy. People right? ask me why I didn't go to college. I told them I was too busy learning. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's what I think is so fascinating about you, is how all these ways you've received 
um, information and knowledge and wisdom. Yeah, I'm sure it all added into my basic way of thinking there. Yeah. You know, it had something to do with every little, um, every little thing, every little. Yeah. What, 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 well, what did your Indian buddies give you? Like, what piece of, of, of knowledge or wisdom came from them? Nobody picked on me. Okay. <laughs> And Something just, about uh, standing uh, up for uh, yourself? Uh, uh, just kind of a, a freedom the way they see it, too, you know, because uh, it was a reservation, you know, we eat com commodities and mm. uh, there wasn't a lot of money. And uh, most of the Indians worked at, uh, well, it was Simplot Place that he actually rented land from the Indian nation and mined it, uh, phosphate, phosphates and stuff like that. Huh. And so they hired the Indians, and so most of them had that job. Mm -hmm. So the ones that I was around, but uh, you know, just like any other, a lot of poverty and a lot of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So you got to stick together. You got to help each other out. Uh huh. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't want to piss them off. <laughs> yeah. So consequently, all my friends in Pocatello, because we used to be rivals with Blackfoot, and then we all got to know each other and run around together. Yeah. 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 Kind of crossing over, crossing worlds. Yeah. And what? What about recently? Is there anything you've done recently to? Um, come back to that, or you said something about some doing some ceremonial work. Yeah, well, I've been a little lax at it lately, but right down the street here, we got a friend that does have a sweat lodge, and try to do two a month. Although it's been working on Saturday, and then I got this going on here, which. Actually, the sweat should be my priority. But huh, you mean the, the music on Saturdays? Yeah. Okay, so there's either music on Saturdays or a sweat. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. And we just called another sweat today, in fact. I don't know if you knew Ruth Tash. Uh-uh. Anyway, she's been sweating with us. They live in McCall, but uh, she's been sweating with us for years and she just died. I didn't know there were some sweats here in, in Valley County. You what? I, there's, I didn't know people were doing sweat lodges in Valley County. Yeah, well, Gary Firebaugh puts him on, and he's uh, he goes mm -hmm. to the Sundance every August over in uh -huh. South Dakota with a chief called Hollowhorn. And, uh, you know, of course, the sweat lodge got smashed this year, so we just built a new sweat lodge. Yeah, I didn't get to one. get on that. Cause so when, when you say you should be doing that, is that something that calls to you or something that sounds really... It's just a great way to reconnect with your spirituality and, you know, just to keep it going and get wound up and on a, you know, it should be a priority. Okay. A, a way of spiritual self-care. Yeah. It keeps your head straight. And it, Mm -hmm. kind of healthy and, uh, and there's something extremely spiritual about it. Oh yeah, oh I mean, yeah. I've, I've heard of incredible things. There's a guy named White Buffalo out at the Pine Ridge Reservation and uh, he tells people that if you see stuff, this stuff flying around and stuff like that or hear stuff, just sit there and don't try to grab it or anything like that. Even, they had a German guy over there, and he was really, really interested in the ceremony and stuff like that, but he would never sweat. Because mm. he didn't, you know, he was atheist or something like that, and he just didn't believe in all that stuff. But uh, Gilly Running, Wombly Gliska, got him to sweat one time, and he died in the sweat. Oh, no. And then he came back to life. And 
he was a believer. I right. guarantee you. Right, a resurrection right there in yeah, the sweat lodge. Right there. <laughs> I mean, we know metaphorically yeah. that can happen. Yeah. Wow, okay. And then to see that chief yeah. out there dancing, because they dance four days solid. Mm. And they're, you know, tied up pigs. And, and this, is, this is the sun dance? Yeah. Okay. And it's probably 106 degrees outside. And they dance all day, and they take a little break at night. And they dance for four days straight. Uh huh. What and and the reason for that, or the the point of it, is is it purification? Is it? Well, Jesus didn't die for them, so it's their sacrifice. Oh, okay. He's a great spirit. Okay. And it's truly amazing. And it's annual. You do it every year. Yep. And well, if you make a commitment to dance, then that's a commitment for four years. Mm, mm. So you got to go back every four years. Every four years. Or four years in a row? Four years in a row. You have to dance? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> That's a commitment. And I tell you what, 104 <laughs> degrees out there and that sun's hot <laughs> in that arbor is, is truly, truly amazing and uh, magic. Mm. So, that, so something in you is really connected with this spiritual lineage given to uh -huh. us from the Blackfoot and maybe this may even be another tribe. Yeah, well, the tribe out there is the Shoban. The Blackfeet Shoban. Indian, Shoban. Yeah. Yeah. And Shoban and Cree and This is important to you. Well, I had my second cousin come through and do my DNA. Is that what it is? Um, do not DNA. DNA. You know where they're... That's what it is, isn't it? Oh, it's like a like a biological second cousin. Yeah, but she's involved in doing people's DNA. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, I'm Sami Indian, which is the indigenous people of Sweden. Uh, of where? Sweden. Of Sweden, huh? Yeah, and that was pretty interesting to find out because yeah. uh, you know I've just always been so interested in that. Uh -huh. Heather went up to Norway and started talking around there and these people said, you can get your dad over here and we'll show him the town where his people live, uh -huh. introduce him to the people and maybe we can find him a lady with a herd of reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> so we might pursue that here pretty soon. Okay. Heather wants to go back there and do that. Uh -huh. And bask. You have, and you have Basque in your DNA. Yeah. Okay. I, got, I, I had one grandma, and she died when I was nine, but I saw pictures, one picture of my grandpa, and he definitely looked Basque. Uh -huh. So old European lineage. Yeah. With a Native American spiritual lineage inclination. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So tell me about what you've done with um, I'm, the landmark, um, the self transformation workshops. I know you've done a couple a couple weekends with with the landmark trainings, which is around getting to know a, yourself more. I did a session with landmark, but it wasn't. Uh, I did one with uh, called uh, Livestream. Okay. Livestream. And it was in Boise, mm -hmm. and I, it r literally altered my life. I mean, after I got through with going through that training, everybody I saw, Randy, what, what's going on, man? You look great. You look so different. <laughs> you actually looked different. Yes. And I was responsible for probably 40 or 50 people going back through that training. <laughs> that you, you inspired. It, yeah, it was so... Uh, what, how did it change you so much? Just slam dragons and group therapy, 32 people in that group and standing up and I decided that whenever they wanted to volunteer, I'd do it immediately, which is way out of, you know, usually I'd just sit back and, and uh, because you knew just telling people who you were, mm -hmm. like a group, group therapy, nothing like it. 
you, you knew you had to just step fully into it, 100%. Yeah. Just give yourself totally, and it would be worth it. Right, and you find out, you know, maybe why you have hang-ups here and hang-ups doing that, because you got 32 people there giving you feedback. Uh-huh. And it was uh, seven days, 24 hours a day. Seven days? Yeah, it was called uh, IPA, Interpersonal Intensive. Huh. Or IPI, Interpersonal Intensive. What, what made you even want to do that? Well, Bobby was getting um, involved in all that stuff. Your second wife. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I always just say yes, you know, although I'd reluctant, you know, because she was hanging out with those other men and getting close to them and doing all that other stuff. I'm a big jealousy thing going on. So something needed to change in your Definitely. life. Definitely. Okay. And that's what I can thank Bobby for and Heather. Okay. Because mm -hmm. we did it together and mm -hmm. got Stephanie involved in it too. Mm -hmm. But it was amazing, you know what? Because it, it's not lecture, it's experience. Landlock was lecture. Well, I'm mm -hmm. hard of hearing. And there was there were 32 people in the class I went through, and there were probably 125 in the one at Landmark. Okay. And I should have got my money back. So this because I couldn't hear. And so this meant more to you. Yeah. This, mm -hmm. So Heather had so much. <clears throat> what happened to me in the live stream happened to Heather in Landmark. Okay. And she was responsible for hundreds of people going through yeah. Landmark. And how did when you emerged? How how were you different when you came out of that experience? Oh, I don't know. I cried a lot in there, and mm. just uh, you know, we have barriers inside that are created for out of guilt or you know whatever things that you do that you're ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And to stand up in front of 32 people, because it's always my secret. And it's the stuff inside. That's the stuff that kills you. Yeah. Gives you cancer or something yep. like that. And to release that was truly amazing. To, and to be witnessed by 30 some people. Yes. Somehow that um, deepens it. Yeah. And they do, the exercises they do, a lot of them are really negative or you know, give negative feedback and then coming around and put it in pot. You know, I had to do all these stories about the bad things that happened to me. I had to tell people why I was grateful for them. Wow. So you had to reframe it. Yeah. Reframe something you had seen as negative and to, and to look at what you re received out of it. Correct. Okay. And, and you helped and, other people do that. And fall in love with everybody that was there. Yes, yeah. yes. You felt your heart just open oh, up man. as you broke through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Outrageous. Yeah. So when you came out of it, your heart was open. Exactly, yeah. No fear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. No fear. No fear. Yeah. So it softened you. It, it, it's... It, yeah, and it was, you know, gestalt therapy. A lot of it was gestalt mm -hmm. therapy. Yeah, yeah. So you, you mentioned Stephanie. Um, you lost Stephanie a few years ago. Uh -huh. And she was young. She was in her 40s? Uh, yeah, 30s? it was five years ago. And, uh, let's see, I think she would be 51 or 52 now. So she was in her mid-40s. Yeah. How... How has that changed you, or how has it changed how you see the world? Like what, like if we were to take this process of looking at something tragic, and now today, five years later, like how, what are the the gifts from Stephanie for you? Well, uh, I don't know my concept of death after, I've had a ton of people die, close people. And mm -hmm. um, I had to kind of integrate that and realize that the only way they leave is physical. They're still here. Oh, you still feel her. Yeah. 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 And 
you know, you're still going through a little mourning and stuff like that, but it doesn't have the impact that mm -hmm. it does on most people. Okay. Because that was horrible. I mean, Doug called me and said, Stephanie's been in a wreck, and she's in the hospital, and they've called Life Flight. Mm -hmm. Doug was down at the bar. I was going to go down and see him, and it comes a Life Flight helicopter, and wow. it turned around right there. You saw it? Yeah. Wow. They called him and said that she was gone. She was gone. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of went numb, you know, but yeah. uh, <clears throat> somewhere deep inside I acquired, uh, I, I don't know how to say it, but, you know, it just happens. It's, you know, it's always sad and stuff like that, but yeah. it's also life. Death is life. So in the in the immediate grieving, you also felt an acceptance. Uh huh. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you f you feel her still, and maybe even more. Maybe it's more constant that you feel her. Oh. Uh, well, I know she's here, and you know my brother's still around. He gets me in trouble with girls. Oh, does he? <laughs> Well, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and somehow all of that must have, all of these things we've been talking about, I'm, what, I'm imagining they've contributed to your art. To When you make a hat, all of this life you've experienced, you've lived, goes into your, the, the craft of making a hat. Somehow. Uh, it, because it's it, a life's yeah. work. There's, you know, I don't know what they call that word, but it's reflected, yeah, in, into the hat stuff. Okay. I think. <laughs> Somehow integrated. Uh -huh. And I used to draw a lot. Uh, when I grew up, we, we had two books. One was the Bible and the other one was Guinness Book of World Records. Huh. And pencils and paper were hard to come by. But I used to draw it, well, at church in the back of the hymn books and stuff like that, and the textbooks we had in school. That's what I did when we were supposed to be reading. I drew pictures, you know. <laughs> you were an artist even then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now it's just, it's a sculpture. It's a That's 3D, it is, yeah. a 3D work of art, and all of who you are and what you've lived and experienced goes into that. I, I just think that has to have a lot to do with why your hats are so beautiful. Probably so. Yeah. Randy, I am so honored to know you. <coughs> you know I love you. And I'm grateful that you've shared some of yourself with us today. You can find Randy at his hat shop in Donnelly Tuesday through Saturday. Tuesday through Saturday. Uh -huh. I'm Renee Silvas with Spotlight McCall. Thank you for listening. Stick around for a few more minutes for a little bit of banjo love from Randy Priest. Oh, man. Rain is frozen. You took mine off winter time. You ain't.